Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Hari Kondabalu grew up in Queens, a cultural melting pot. He's Indian American himself. Then he went to a private liberal arts college in Maine. And then for the first time going to Bowdoin College and hearing the word diversity, I'm like, what the hell is that? I was <laughs> like, this is because it wasn't a thing in Queens. <laughs> diversity is not a thing. It's like every day. You just made, why would you name it? We didn't have to celebrate diversity until people told us we did, you know, because that's just life. It's bullseye. So usually when comedians are starting out, they have to deal with a lot of hecklers. Hurry was doing progressive political jokes in Seattle, so he didn't have to worry too much about that. Everybody was pretty much on the same page. Mostly his problem was that activists sort of don't get laughing. There's good things in that, like I have a unique audience. You also deal with folks who don't know how comedy clubs work, so they will snap. Yeah, snap. Anyway, we'll talk about Hurry's stand-up. Then I'll sit down with the TV and film director, Jake Kasdan. We'll talk about his work on Freaks and Geeks, New Girl, and his new movie, Sex Tape. It stars Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel. Partly, it's about a couple whose sex tape leaks onto the internet. Mostly, it's about their relationship. It's a real thing of, of young or semi-young couples with little kids where you'd go like, who are we? It's not that I love you any less, I love you as much or more than ever, but um, we're just like in a different mode. I'll also talk to Kasdan about being the son of Lawrence Kasdan. You know, the Lawrence Kasdan who wrote The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Plus, book recommendations from the LA Times' Carolyn Kellogg, and I'll tell you about the special gift of Harvey P. Carr. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Hari Kundabalu thought that he was going to law school. Then somewhere between taking an AmeriCorps job, organizing immigrants in Seattle, and taking the LSAT, things changed direction. He started spending his nights on stage at comedy clubs. By the time he was done with his AmeriCorps commitment, he decided to bail on law school. He was going to be a stand-up. His comedy is deeply informed by his own experience as the child of immigrants and by his work as an organizer and his education in comparative politics. On the cover of his new album is Hari, standing like George Washington, astride a rickshaw. And of course, it's a bicycle rickshaw, pedaled by a white dude in a suit. The record's called Waiting for 2042. Here's Hari explaining the significance of that year. I'm not the one. I'm not the one that's obsessed with talking about race in this country. I'm not the one, right? I'm not the one who keeps bringing up 2042. How come I keep hearing about the year 2042 on the news? 2042, for those of you who don't know, is the year where, according to census figures, white people will be the minority in this country, right? They'll be 49%. No, who gives a Honestly, who gives a Why do I have to keep hearing about this? This number is not important to me. Are there white people in this country? That's who it's for, by the way. White people are freaked out. Are there white people in this country who are actually freaked out about this? Don't worry, white people. You were the minority when you came to this country. Things seem to have worked out for you, all right? But here's the bigger point. Here's the bigger point, right? 
49% white doesn't make you the minority. That's not how math works, right? 49% white is only the minority if you think the other 51% is exactly the same, right? It only works if you think, well, it's 49% white people and 51% you people. That's the only way that works. Welcome to Bali. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have Thank you on the show. Thank you very much. That's the most aggressive version of that joke that I have. Like, I've done that so <laughs> many times. And the one that's actually recorded uh, officially is, like, the most aggressive version. Because I try to... Because I know because the, the content's pretty heavy, so I try to deliver that one a little lighter and sillier. But, like, that night, like, just... I, well, the the yeah. audience, <laughs> they're just they're... the audience that you're taping. Yeah, I I mean I can't see them because it's because it's a record album. Yeah, but uh, they sound like they were in a frenzy. Yeah. Oh my god, it, it was from the moment I walked out on stage, and it's funny because during the the recording, because we did two that night. The first one was the one we draw like primarily almost all from, and. I knew I'm, like it was going to sound different because they were like screaming and cheering, like it, they were like at a rally the whole, the whole <laughs> thing. And I remember being really frustrated when I got off stage. I'm like, that's not what a stand-up record is supposed to sound like. And Kamal was there because he surprised me and he like came to the recording. And W. Kamal Bell. W. Kamal Bell and and he's like, that was incredible. And I'm like, they were screaming the whole time. And he's like. Like that's great because they they it was like they were at a rock concert they were so excited to see you and I'm like yeah but that's not what comedy records sound like and he's like yeah and yours is going to sound different which makes it good yours gonna, <laughs> yours is going to sound distinct and like I thought about you know why that happened and and what made that recording special and it's Oakland was on fire like the day or two before because it was after the Trayvon verdict the week before like Fruitvale was out and so there were all these confrontations with cops like the night before and the night before that and people were at my show who were dealing with the verdict who were dealing with what had happened in Oakland and who told me after the show like we needed that that was important so now it all makes sense like that's why people were screaming like. I was somehow connected emotionally to what they'd been through. And I was saying stuff that obviously is like really political and about race. And, and it was a release for them. So I was their release. So the album is that release in Oakland. But at the time when I'm on stage, it was like not horrifying, but certainly like this is not what I expected. Like, Were you worried? Here's the thing. I think for a lot of comedians, they get worried when they are getting cheers instead of laughter. Yes. Because it means that they're, you know, rather than doing their ultimate goal, which is to be maximum amount of funny, yes. what they're doing is confirming something about the audience. That Yeah, it's I hate it so much. And so, like, for me, it was like, this stuff is funny. I've seen all this stuff work. I did this stuff the week before in Seattle. It killed. So it's like, just laugh. I just need you to laugh. But, like, afterwards, I think considering everything and all the factors and it was special. Like, why am I upset that the album sounds different and it, it doesn't sound like anything else? And the fact people are cheering and screaming about that is wonderful. I don't know if anyone has a record that has that response. So why am I so upset about that? And so it took me like like basically like six months to get over what it sounded like and actually love the fact it sounds like this. But initially, like, oh, God, I was horrified. One of the things... Even though I don't want to say I was horrified. I was horrified by the cheering. One of the things that I was reading about, about your days in Seattle, where mm. you um, did most of your starting in, starting out in stand-up comedy, was a, a description of how pr- proud you were, your description of how proud you were of bringing a mixed audience, culturally, ethnically, yeah. gender-wise, yeah. to comedy. And that part of that was 
that there were necessarily some people that you were kind of introducing to comedy. Yeah. I hear a lot of people say, like, I don't really like comedy, but I like you. Or I've never been to a comedy club before, but I really want to see you. And there's good things in that. Like, oh, I have a unique audience. And I have people who specifically want to see me. And who, which comedian doesn't want that? Like somebody who actually, audience who gets what they're doing. But you also deal with folks who don't know how comedy clubs work. Or folks that don't always get joke structure or how things work or <laughs> it, things like that. So, I mean, that's there's there's ups and downs. But you also have audiences that I can do the master's class of an idea, you know what I mean, of a joke. I don't need to just stop at the first one and, like, they're not going to get the rest of this. I can actually dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and for me, it forces me, if I'm working on a new thing, to, to go further because I, I think, like, oh, you're going to get it. So I can I trust you and you trust me. Let's just see, how, see where it goes. Alternative comedy... Uh, which is, you know, I mean, it's a slightly problematic descriptor, but I think yeah. it's useful. Uh, alternative comedy is a world that I would say in a lot of places, neither the audience nor the performer base are particularly diverse. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. To some extent, being alternative is kind of a luxury. Um, That's funny, yeah. But uh, I, w I wonder how, how you feel you fit into that world. Jeez, Jesse, it feels like you're in my head. It's funny. These questions are questions no one's asked and that I have thought about. See, I mean, Seattle is a version of that. Like, we had an alternative scene, but it was such a smaller scene that everybody had to do everything, right? So you you have many different styles. And so what I do, which is, like, heavily talks about race and politics, but also I play with the form. Like, I guess playing with the form, that aspect of it, I suppose, again, for lack of a better term, is an alternative thing to do, like... Uh, n not just choose conventional ways to tell a joke. But I do talk about race a lot. And, I, and, and a lot of alter alternative spaces, when you're like aggressively talk about race or politics or are earnest, <laughs> like you, you know, your DOA, you know, I've, I've had to navigate that. But in Seattle, it was it was a little different because like I could do that because I was it. There, there weren't, you know what I mean? There was no one else doing that. There was, you were speaking on behalf of everybody. Everybody, every person of color was, you know, and I was good. It was also one. the other thing was that, you know, not to say that um, that Seattle doesn't have great comics, but like, you know, there's still there, there's fewer of us. So there's like a handful of us that are really doing stuff that people want to come and see. So, like, I was good. And at the end of the day, I had the results. And I going to L.A. or New York, for example, when you have like lots of comics and the scenes are, I think, more fragmented at times, like it gets a little weird. Sometimes I've been in rooms where I'm like the only one really talking about race or I'm the only person of color performing. And it, it does feel a little weird. And I don't always fit neatly into that. And I've had to think to myself and I hate this. I'm like. All right, let me slip that Weezer joke in here. Like, the, <laughs> let me, let me, that old vegan soul food joke I used, let's throw that in. You know what I mean? Like, there's these things that I ha sometimes I think, okay, if I come off too aggressive, I'm going to lose them. If I show them I care, I'm going to lose them. So let me slip in a variety of different things um, to just mix it up and, and keep that room fresh. And it's, it's unfortunate that I have, to, I have to think that way. My guest is comedian Hari Kondabolu. His new album is called Waiting for 2042. When you perform stand-up comedy, do you get feedback that is like uh, detailed notes <laughs> about what you did wrong? Oh yeah, <laughs> from from both sides. I don't know sides are bizarre to even say sides, but like from uh, from from folks who, who oh god, this is this is not quite answering. But one of the first time I did first times I did comedy in Seattle, somebody suggested that I do it with a Nehru collar. That I wore, always wore shirts that had a Nehru collar. 
Wait, who suggested this? I don't want to say his name. The comedy store guy in 1979? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I'll get... I'll get people who, I mean, there's always the folks who are like, you know, stop, you, know, you talk about race too much. You go, stop talking about race. You know, all you talk about is racist things that happen to you. I'm like, if they stopped happening, I would stop talking about them. Um, you know, like, I don't get all your references. Do you think you're smarter than me? So there's that. And then there's, or people who just disagree with me being a comedian. Like, you are not a comedian. That is not funny. So you are not a comedian. I'm like, I, I am a comedian. <laughs> I think I am a comedian. I am in this space. They hired me to be a comedian. And then there's folks who like my stuff, and if I slip up in any way or if I say anything they don't agree with, there's a detailed explanation of what I did wrong and how I'm supposed to fix it. Or here are things you should write jokes about, and how come you haven't written a joke about this yet? As if you could just do it. That's and just and it's like a list of transgressions top. and tragedies. Yes, right? yes, or, or top or topics, or uh, you know, this is what this is your reading list. Um, <laughs> so I get. I get a part of me feels like, am I asking for this? Maybe I'm asking for this. But it's also hard to explain to people that comedy is, it's evolving. So I might say something, because I've said things on stage I I regret that are terrible, awful, miserable things. Sometimes I've wrote them, which makes me feel worse that I actually wrote it. And sometimes they're things that I say in the moment because I feel weak. And I think about them, and if I can fix it on stage, I will. But sometimes I don't catch it till after, and I think about, man, that is messed up. And yeah, that logic doesn't hold. And you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe everyone didn't go to college, and maybe it's not fair for me to to talk with such assumptions. And you know, there's all sorts of things that I, I have to try to fix. And 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 I feel like I did something wrong, and I have to fix it. But it's it's hard to like you have to figure that out. And Comedy is amazing because you can address something immediately and you can talk about things immediately after they happen. But it also means because you're doing it immediately and it's an immediate reaction, reactions aren't always as thought out as they need to be. You're reacting. And I think it's hard, especially when you have a lot of fans who have never been to comedy and aren't obsessed with comedy the way I am and have always been. They don't get that like, oh, he's figuring it out. I'm figuring it out. It requires growth. Stand-up requires growth. Like... Sometimes sets are scratch paper. Sometimes sets are first drafts. It's the, the only art form where, you know, you're doing multiple takes, but people are actually watching the different takes and they're judging the different takes. And you want to edit it out of your life and you can't because they see it. That's, that's hard. That's what makes it magical, but that's what makes it hard. And I wish sometimes people would cut us a little slack because that's part of our growth. And we're growing, and that's why something I would have maybe said in the first time, maybe I'll say something different that goes against what I said in the first one. Why? That's growth. I'm a human. I changed my opinion, or I've rethought it, or I found a new angle to it. That's okay. My guest is comedian Hari Kondabalu. His new album is called Waiting for 2042. Um, and I'm going to play another clip from it here. So... This is Hari, who lives in Brooklyn, describing seeing uh, a black woman caring for a white kid um, walking down the street. Chances are that's not what happened, right? Chances are that's the nanny and the child she's taking care of. And I'm trying to walk by these two people on the street when I overhear what the black woman is saying to the white child. This is what she's saying. Toby, your name is Toby. Can you say it? That's your name. Say it. Your name is Toby. Your name is Toby. One, two, three, four, five, seven. All right, all right. About, about 20 of you in the core demographic. Um, but the rest of you who are like, why is this interesting that his name is Toby? 
There's a book slash miniseries by Alex Haley called Roots. And in Roots, a slave Kunta Kinte is brought to America and is told his name is Toby and refuses to be called Toby, so he's whipped repeatedly. Your name is Toby, Kunta Kinte, whip. Toby, Kunta Kinte, whip. Absolutely horrific. Now, flash forward to my neighborhood in Brooklyn two years ago. I saw a black woman tell a white child that his name was Toby. And there was nobody else there to see this. It was just me the whole time, like, what the, f wow. Wow. I have been in a writing slump. This is perfect. <laughs> I, almost every joke on your album uh, has a joke and then an extended <laughs> and then an extended series of explanations yes. about why and how you chose to tell that joke yeah. <laughs> in that particular way. That, that initially started as a joke that nobody got. And then I'm like, well, I need to explain why it's funny to me. And then you'll understand it. And, and you're told you're never supposed to explain it. But, like, that's – come on. There's so much meat there once you explain it. You just have to, like, put it out there and let people catch up with you. And, and honestly, that became funny to people, too, the fact I was willing to explain Roots. Because for the people who know what Roots is, it's, like, hilarious. For people who didn't immediately make the connection, but then once I explained, they, they remembered it's great. It just kind of brings the joke back to life. I think there's also a sort of interesting element in you essentially forcing cultural competency onto the audience. <laughs> like, say, like just grabbing the audience by the shoulders and being like, white people, I'm going to break this down for you. I know that you've never had to go through the inconvenience of learning about someone right. else's frame of reference. Right, right. It's, uh, I mean, it doesn't always work because it, it also requires white people that w are willing to have that experience. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you can't force people to, t like, what, you didn't do the required reading? All right, hold on a second. Like, it's a very bizarre. You'll get your bell hooks book at the door. <laughs> right, right. I've thought about that, like, <laughs> but like adding footnotes or like giving people a list of references, like right before. So instead of an opening act, they could study up, and then I'd go out and do the set I really want to do, like with references only my friends would get. And I mean, the best shows though are the shows where you feel like you're performing for friends, even though you haven't met anybody in the room. After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Hari Kondabolu. He'll talk about the character Apu on The Simpsons and what it feels like to be offended by one of your favorite television shows of all time. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. What's up? My name is Jasper Red, co-host of The Goose Down, along with the lovely Kimberly Clark, and we want to invite you into the comfort and groove of our podcast that encompasses the arts and entertainment. You can check us out at MaximumFun.org, also available on iTunes. See ya! Hey guys, so last week on the program, I told you slash asked you about how to write a note to your program director if you live somewhere where Bullseye isn't on the radio. And so many people wrote such nice notes. A lot of people copied me or sent them to me after the program director replied. Um, and so I want to thank all of those folks who did that. It makes a really huge difference if you write a, a nice note asking for Bullseye. And I, I really appreciate it. If you live somewhere where you'd like to hear Bullseye on the radio and you don't get Bullseye on the radio, uh, the best way to try and get Bullseye on the radio is to 
you know, go to your local station's website and look up the program director's email address and just send a nice note. And my experience is that they really care what people think and, um, you know, they really want to hear from you. And so if you write a nice note that's about why the show means something to you and, you know, maybe include a, some audio, like a link to a favorite segment or something like that for them to listen to, they really will give it some consideration. Um, and they'll give it a lot more consideration than if I write them a note. <laughs> so... Uh, thanks to everybody who's done that and, and you know, do that if, if you want to hear uh, Bullseye on the radio and, and you don't already live somewhere where you can. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Hari Kondabolu. His debut stand-up album is called Waiting for 2042. Hari, I want to play a clip from this short film that you made, and I'm sorry for playing a clip from something you made when you were, you know, 25 years old or whatever, but... Um, in this, you play a version of yourself, but you also play a comic named Manoj, who is a very successful local comedian and kind of a rising star. Let's listen. We go over to some popular Hindus and Hindons. <laughs> eating a sandwich, Hindu, Hindu. Eating a beef sandwich, Hindon't. <laughs> Having sex after marriage, Hindu. Eating beef, Hindon! <laughs> Riding in a rickshaw, Hindu. Riding a cow, Hindon! That's beef! That is beef! It's beef! Man, that was so long ago. <laughs> It's funny because the, the film is just about the idea of uh, using, exploding your ethnicity for laughs or for success and playing on, you know, you know kind of reinforcing people's stereotypes and assumptions. And um, I hear it now. I think it's still somewhat relevant, but it does feel a little more dated, even though it hasn't been that long ago. I feel like things have changed so rapidly. You, know, you have a generation that also grew up with South Asians and, and some experiences, and it's not just Apu anymore. Like, you have, like, the ascent of, like, Aziz Ansari and Mindy Kaling, who are also creating their own content, and Cal Penn. Like, you, there's just so much, you know, and Cal Penn playing roles that he deserves, like, like better roles, and, like, Asif being on The Daily Show. Like, there's all this stuff that has happened since that point that I don't think it's it's not true, and it's not to say that there aren't people that are still kind of exploiting it and doing, like, lowest common denominator stuff, but... It is funny to hear that and think so much has happened since I made that short. I want to talk to you a little bit about Apu. Yeah. Since Apu has come up. Yeah. You did a piece on Totally Biased, uh, the uh, late night FX show that you were a writer for. May it rest in peace. Uh, about Apu. Let's take a listen to a portion of that. Apu, a cartoon character voiced by Hank Azaria, a white guy. <laughs> A white guy doing an impression of a white guy making fun of my father. <laughs> if I saw Hank Azaria do that voice at a party, I would kick the <laughs> out of him. Yeah. yeah. Or I'd imagine kicking the <laughs> out of him. Apu is a really troubling figure. You know, he embodies some stereotypes about uh, South Asian people. Yeah. He's an Indian dude that works at a cookie mart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's voiced by a white person right. in a very broad accent. Right. 
you know, he's further problematized by the fact that he's on the greatest comedy show of the last, yeah. one of the greatest comedy shows of all time, yeah. certainly the greatest comedy show of our generation. Yes. And that he's, uh, over the years, become a very rich, interesting character. Yes, yes. And I, <laughs> I love that show, grew up on that show, and I love the character. It's that bizarre thing where I loved the character but hated the fact it was it and that it was the accent and everything else. And it was, because he was funny. You know, even outside of the accent, like, he was, he's, a, especially when contrast with Homer at times, incredible, right? But it was just like, that's all we get. And that's what I get called at school. Like, that's who, that is the thing that's supposed to hurt me, which is very bizarre, right? Like, you love a show and that has to be an insulting thing. Um, but we didn't have any, it was that or Gandhi, which is pretty broad in terms of spectrum, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, also that, like, I would never have to go to school and worry about being called Homer, Homer or right, Bart. Right, Like, well, or you do disco have. disco stew, unless I right. was wearing disco. Right, right, right. You do have spiky hair like Bart. Right. Um, I mean, it, it was it was a strange thing, and again, the the accent was kind of ridiculous. I, I, I saw some interview with Hank Azaria, who does the voice of uh, Apu on uh, on YouTube, and he was asked about the character, and and he talks about how they when he was auditioning, doing different voices, uh, they asked him, "Can he you know, do an Indian accent?" And he's like, "He did it," and he's like, "But you know, it's really stereotype. It's not very good." And they're like, "Oh, that's fine." And it's like, why is that fine? It's oh, it's because like we didn't exist. Like we existed, but like who's gonna say anything? Nobody cares. Who's the audience watching it? Like my generation of of kids was not considered. Like it didn't matter if we felt anything or if that had an impact. But you know, we grew up having to deal with it. And even though it was funny and all that, like that was that was part of it. I remember when when I was writing that piece uh, for Totally Biased. You know, I had that a poop piece in and. It just felt corny. It felt corny to talk about it. Like, why am I talking about a poo? Like, I've talked about this forever, and it's already, like, 2000, like, at that point, 2012, 2013. And Kamal said, this is amazing. And, no, you've talked about a poo for years. You and your friends have talked about a poo for years. You and your family have talked about a poo for years. No one's ever talked about him this way. No one has talked about, like, the impact it's had on you or, or your friends and family, how ridiculous the character is and how it's a relic of another time. And I was really proud to do it when, when I thought about it that way. Yeah, I guess no one has talked about it. It's funny to, like, you know, me and Hank Azair have had, it, like, Twitter exchanges about it. And and I guess— What was that, what was that like? Surreal. <laughs> it was surreal because I love Hank Azaria and I love that show. And someone had done a piece on HuffPo about um, Huffington Post about Apu, and they interviewed Hank Azaria. And Hank Azaria said that, you know, the first thing that made him question it was my piece— that he had seen it and it it really shook him. It like made him reconsider because he thought if, if there was only like one Jewish character and it was that, like, yeah, he would be bummed too. And that was incredibly idea that I made something that reached the voice of Apu and in any way like questioned the Simpsons world and somebody from the world actually heard it because I love that show. Like, I love that show. And uh, it was a big influence on me just outside of that character, like a big part of how I view comedy. So... The fact that Hank Azaria had any response to it and it was positive is amazing, mind-blowing. Hari, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Oh, thank you, Jesse. This was great. Hari Kondabolu. His debut stand-up comedy album is called Waiting for 2042. It's out now on Kill Rock Stars Records.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we like to check in with one of our favorite culture critics to get recommendations of things worth your time. And today our pal Carolyn Kellogg is joining us. She writes about books for the Los Angeles Times. And we're going to talk about some of her all-time favorite reads. Uh, we're going to start with a book that broke the mold and the genre it helped recreate. Carolyn, welcome back to Bullseye. Howdy, Jesse. We're doing Cormac McCarthy this week. We're doing Westerns. Okay, so <laughs> uh, let's start with All the Pretty Horses, which won the uh, National Book Award in 1992, Cormac McCarthy classic. I haven't read it. Tell me about it. See, here's one of those things. There, there are these books that sort of slide into classic land, and you just miss them. And uh, All the Pretty Horses kind of defined Cormac McCarthy's public face. He'd been writing books before that, but, you know, they always had somebody who only had sex with dead women or uh, was murdering babies. Like, they were so bloody and dark. And uh, All the Pretty Horses is the beginning of this trilogy that he did that's about the Texas-Mexico border and has a number of young men and horses and young women and and grown-ups who betray them um, and this bleak, bleak, bleak landscape. So I think people have accepted the idea of Cormac McCarthy and his tone and, uh, you know, he's a venerated figure now. What was significant about this book in 1992? Before that, Westerns had been really big in the 1950s, like in TV and books by guys like Louis L'Amour that like your grandpa would read. And they were all kind of corny. They were kind of like the movie Shane, uh, where the good guys were good guys and the bad guys were bad guys. And, um, you know, the women stayed home and stirred the pot and wore the calico. Um, Cormac McCarthy stripped all of that away and brought that uh, the bloody landscape to life through like the language and the narrative and really gave you this sense of um, like need and want and desire all wrapped up in the Western frontier. Now, let's talk about a book that came out, uh, let's see, about 20 years later Mm -hmm. um, called The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. Now, this book is in some ways a response to the world that was spawned by All the Pretty Horses. Yes, it really couldn't exist without All the Pretty Horses, but it is like the best kind of satire because it uh, it kind of pokes holes at all of the bloody violence without mocking them. It's got this tremendous amount of heart. It's about two brothers who are on a quest in the West and they're... Um, they're trying to find a man and they come across, you know, like hookers with hearts of gold and an evil crone who lives in a cabin and men who who give them uh, give them business deals, but actually wish them ill. And there's something wrong in it. All are all of these kind of classic tropes of Westerns. But Patrick DeWitt is just kind of bonkers and it is turned inside out. Uh, The bloody horses are so disgustingly like this one horse just is the worst old nag and eventually finally dies. And you just feel so bad for it. And it's so gross to read. And (laughs) and it's kind of awesome. (laughs) Carolyn Kellogg recommends The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt from 2011, and uh, the novel that spawned the uh, uh, the generation of books that that book satirizes, All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. Um, Carolyn, it is always fun to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on Bullseye. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Carolyn Kellogg writes about books for the LA Times. You can find her writing in the paper and on the paper's website in the blog, Jacket Copy. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Zero Effect was Jake Kasdan's first feature film. He was 24. Of course, he'd had some advantages in the film education department. He grew up on film sets with his dad, Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan the Elder wrote The Empire Strikes Back, The Return of the Jedi, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, among others, and directed The Big Chill. Kasdan the Younger has had a fruitful career in film and TV since that first movie in 1998. He directed the pilot episode of the iconic TV show Freaks and Geeks. He wrote and directed the biopic spoof Walk Hard and the satire The TV Set. And he's an executive producer of the sitcom New Girl. Oh, and he also made the $200 million smash Bad Teacher. His new film, Sex Tape, is about a couple who accidentally let an intimate video of theirs onto the Internet and their adventures trying to get it off the Internet. Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel play the married couple Annie and Jay. In this scene, Annie's just had what she thinks is a very successful business meeting, and she surprises Jay with a night that's just for the two of them. Hey. Hey, babe. Hi. Where are the kids? They're my mom's. <clears throat> oh, they are? I thought that we were going to go down to do... Wow! Oh, hi. Wow. Look at you. Too much. No, it's great. I was thinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the kids, um, how long are they? They're sleeping over. Yes! Because I was thinking that maybe we could celebrate just the two of us. I get it. That's a great idea. This is like the best idea you've ever had. <laughs> you look amazing. Do you own these underwear? Because mm -hmm. those, I've never seen those before. Come on. This is so exciting. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> Jake Kasdan, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you. Ah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I really, really like it when uh, Jason Siegel says, I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that uh, it's that coded message that uh, they, they've been waiting for the opportunity. He real you can almost. It's funny when you listen to the clip, you can almost sort of hear her standing there in her underwear. That he's <laughs> responding to it's the sound of Cameron Diaz in her underwear. But let's be clear, you can't one hundred percent hear that because that would potentially be an issue with the FCC. <laughs> exactly. You can only almost hear it. <laughs> you can infer it. That's right. The two of them are, uh, you know, they're a couple in this film, um, and it, they're a great couple. They're great. They both have great screen presences. Yeah. I feel like Jason Siegel could do almost anything in a movie, and you would love him. Yeah, I, you weird. know, I feel that way about him. I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing. He's, um, you know, I've been working with Jason intermittently since he was like eighteen uh, when we did the pilot for Freaks and Geeks remember very vividly meeting him for the first time when he came in to audition for that character of Nick. Um, and it was one of these kind of, it was a thing you remember forever, like a transformative kind of moment in terms of that project and what that character was going to be just suddenly became incredibly vivid. But then also, uh, like he walked out of the room and Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, uh, Paul had created the show and Judd was the executive producer and I was directing it and we, three of us were sitting there and Allison Jones, the great casting director, was uh, sitting there with us and we all just kind of looked at each other like, wow, that's the real thing. That's what it's like when somebody is just brilliantly funny and also just 100% completely real and you always possessing... You were that a, much older than I wasn't him. that much you older. You were like 25 or something, right? I was, yeah, 25 or 26. And... um. But, you know, by comparison, I was an old man. And already he had that uh, that thing 
that just like in, hugely likable, even as he's sitting there playing stoned and talking about just the dumbest stuff on earth. You just kind of love them, you know. Can you tell me what the planning is like uh, when you make a movie that's called Sex Tape? For who is going to be naked and how much? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, that seems like it would be like a, a whole segment of pre production. Yeah. <laughs> how much discussion there is about that? Part of it, I guess, the real planning of it, it sort of starts with how you write it. And you do kind of want to think about that a little bit. You know that um, sometimes, like, when it's too naked or too explicit, it can make it harder to get a laugh. And I've had that problem before i've had you know and uh in this movie i made walk hard that you were talking about which is this kind of insane to describe it now is kind of insane but basically a spoof of like biopics and um like ray and walk the line and that kind of kind of movies and we had a ton of like really outrageous nudity and it would sometimes that to us was really funny um but you could feel sometime in the audience that it was just like distracting and like Whatever the kind of human reaction to naked people is, it doesn't super easily coexist with laughing out loud, sort of. And the, the, whatever the dynamics of like people sitting in a movie theater together with their people, you know, with their boyfriend or girlfriend, it just like is complicated. So you know that you kind of want to be careful and strategic about it. With this movie, you know, there there is really uh, um, quite a bit of them. There's it's not there's a fair amount of sex, but there's also just a lot of like preamble to sex, a lot of after sex, a lot of sort of thinking about sex and talking about sex. So it's like very intimate, you know. They they really are. Uh, for every one of those scenes that takes you know three minutes of movie, we're shooting it all day or sometimes more than a day. And so the result was, you know, we talked before about like, look, this is a movie where you're just kind of going to be all over each other and in bed naked or mostly naked for like days at a time. We know that's the starting place. And then you kind of talk about how it's all going to work and what you're actually going to see. And, um, you know, Jason's like completely fearless as anyone who uh, has seen Sarah Marshall knows. Um, You know, I mean, you can't even hardly really think of anything quite like what he did in (laughs) Sarah Marshall. Um, And, Cameron, in general, it's different for an actress, but I will say that she was comfortable with what she is like and what she looks like, and she was completely game to... She didn't want it to be the thing where, like, the dude does all the risky stuff because it's more acceptable to laugh there. So, you know, we figured it out together, and she really wanted to be an equal part of that, and to the point where... Eventually, we were there shooting sex tape material, and she's pitching jokes where she's lying around naked with a fake beard and that kind of thing. My guess, Jake Kasdan's new movie is called is Sex Tape, and it stars Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel as a married couple who um, make a sex tape and then <laughs> lose it onto the internet. Exactly. And I, I think sort of thematically it's about a couple who have gotten swept up in their, you know, they've they've been together since college. They've been swept up into their lives and have lost touch with each other, essentially. That's right. Um, you know, like they still like and love each other, but they don't, they've lost They've their lost connection. contact with some of their, their just coupleness. They've right. lost a, uh, they, they've lost easy contact with sort of an important part of a, 
relationship that's easier to access earlier in the relationship a lot of the time where you're just kind of really into each other. And that's partly about sex, but it's also partly about just how they relate to each other. And it's about them sort of trying to reconnect. After a break, Jake Kasdan talks about what it was like to have a dad who wrote two Star Wars movies. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Every Wednesday, 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 Maximum Fun presents Lady to Lady, a comedy podcast with Chess the Tower Marker, Brawl and Brandy Posey, and Barbara Mayday Gray. Listen as they throw down with comedy heavyweights like Aisha Tyler, Retta, Kate Flannery, and more. These ladies will make you laugh so hard you will literally explode. So go to MaximumFun.org or iTunes and download Lady to Lady before it's too late. Wait, where's the, where's the music? What happened? My throat hurts. I don't know what to do. Should we just get coffee? Okay. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jake Kasdan. He's the director of the new comedy Sex Tape. His previous films include Bad Teacher and Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. Kasdan's also a longtime television director and producer, having worked on Freaks and Geeks, Ben and Kate, and New Girl. I want to ask you what it was like to be a kid whose dad was writing Star Wars <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, I understand that's a broad question, and you were yeah. pretty young yeah. uh, for Empire Strikes Back, but old enough to know that it was a big deal, I think. That's a really good way to describe it. I was really young and just old enough to know that it was a big deal. I was a little younger when the, like when Empire came out, 81. I was like seven. You know, I was like a little on the young side to have it hit me at that time with kind of the full impact that it would hit kids a little older and then it eventually hit me, um, you know, just in terms of what the movies mean to you. But I knew it was a really big deal. I knew that people thought it was a big deal and were very excited by it, you know. Um, and then at the same time, it was kind of like that was his job, uh, you know, at at that time. Did you get like free Star uh, Wars stuff? We got some free stuff. At the, as I, was, uh, I feel like more around like Return of the Jedi period, we'd get some like action figures and stuff like that. You know, it was a funny thing because I was around the sets of the movies that he directed a ton growing up. But the Star Wars movies that he wrote... And Raiders, I, I he wrote the scripts, and then other people went and made them. You know, we weren't physically around them, so it was this sort of you kind of knew of the that it was happening, and that it was this it was a you know a huge event for him and for us. But it wasn't there wasn't a lot of physical proximity to it. You know, I mean, and like, the wild thing is that now, thirty years later, he's working on the next one. Yeah, that's what and, I'm t- um, I and I. You know, so it's been this kind of funny, interesting thing um, for my whole life. But it's been like a thing, you know, in the past, like in the distant, increasingly distant past. And then in the last year, it's just very much the present again. And people <laughs> people are really excited about it, as they should be. I'm really excited about it, excited to see what it all turns into, you know. Um, but he's uh, I mean, like I just like everyone else can't wait to see the next Star Wars movie. Well, I don't want to have you here and not get to talk about some of the stuff, some of the movies and television shows that you've made that I really love. Your first project with Jason Siegel, as you mentioned, was Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. 
Um, that was a show that's, uh, you know, now beloved by many, mm. uh, was beloved by a much smaller number when it was actually on television. Yeah. Unfortunately for it. Yeah. <laughs> We have a scene from Freaks and Geeks, actually from the pilot of Freaks and Geeks. Okay. And uh, Lindsay Weir is the protagonist of the mm. show. Um, she has been to, the, you know, before the show has started, she's a good girl. She's a mathlete. Right. Um, talks a lot about how she was a mathlete. And she's trying to make a sort of social jump from being a good kid to being one of the freaks. The kids yeah, she's sort intrigued of... by the freaks. Exactly. Let's take a listen. You guys know Lindsay? Hi. You were, uh, you were in my English class last year, right? You're that chick who got an A. Yeah, well, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I don't know. What are you gonna do? <laughs> so you guys going to the homecoming dance? <laughs> I beg your pardon? That's funny. It's a joke, right? <laughs> my dad's kind of making me go. Dad's making you go to the dance? Man, what's that all about? <laughs> Who's your dad? Hitler? <laughs> I just thought maybe, you know, you guys were gonna go. To make fun of people. <laughs> I mean, that could be kind of funny, right? I would go, but I have a prior engagement. <laughs> My cousin just sent me a bunch of mushrooms and I'm gonna eat them. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know they're gonna play disco, right? Disco sucks. I hate disco. <laughs> <laughs> Rather make out Principal Farber, you know? Oof, again? <laughs> Shut up, man. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> Some really great high school zingers yeah. in there. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Exactly, and you can hear, like, it's so funny to listen to that and hear all those people and their those uh, rhythms that, you know, are in their earliest stages right there and have become, you know, obviously developed quite a bit, but you can really hear all of them in it, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's like It could only be Seth Rogen. Yeah, it's like a slightly more Canadian movie star yeah. that we all know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Was it difficult to defend the tone of that show, which was so specific? The tone of the show and the sort of sensibility and the pace the things that made it most unusual were so completely central to our sense of of what it was and what we were doing. We couldn't really have changed those things if we would have wanted to. We wouldn't have known how. We just didn't have the... It was so clearly exactly what it was supposed to be, you know. Um, like I say, it was my first TV show that I'd ever worked on, and what I did not have... You know, I could tell that it was a very fortunate, kind of lucky, fun, great thing that was happening. But what I didn't have full a full sense of until much later was how unbelievably rare it is that you have a cast of that quality and caliber, that many unbelievably funny people, everybody exactly right for their parts, you know, and, and the parts moving to them because they're so good supported by that kind of writing and everything. It was just a very unusual sort of freak good experience, so to speak. Um, one of my favorites among your films is uh, the TV set, which oh, is 
a movie, a, a sort of smaller scale movie about a guy who's a television writer, the creator of a television program, as this show moves through pilot season. Yeah. And I want to play a scene from the movie. The guy, his name is Mark Klein, is played by David Duchovny. Yeah. And this is relatively early in the film, and we're sort of we're sort of dropped in as they're casting. Right. And they've just had this uh, casting meeting with um, all of the network executives. Uh, Sigourney Weaver plays the head of the network. Yeah. He's not sure that the casting meeting went the way that he wanted. <laughs> right. Um, he's cool with one of their cho- one of the network's choices. He he's feels like the network wants to go a different direction with the lead yeah. uh, than what he wants. Um, and then they they get into some other notes. Let's take a listen. Yeah. There's a feeling among some of us. Is it absolutely necessary that the brother commit suicide? Sorry. It's just so sad. Yeah, I, I never saw this as a suicide show. I see it more like a. A guy comes home, the town needs him kind of show. A little northern exposure, a little Ed. You see, uh, this is it's very personal to me because my brother killed himself. That's, uh, that's where all this came from. And, uh, you know, the suicide, to me, has always been kind of the premise for everything that happens. I know, but let's just think about it for a second. What if it weren't? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Since I went back to working in television, which I do a lot now, I have not watched that movie. And uh, I re- see, now I remember why. <laughs> I read an interview... <laughs> I read an interview that you did, uh, like, around the time of the release of the movie. Yeah. And they said, like, you know, they said something about this being a satire of the television industry. Yeah. And you were absolutely insistent that it was not a satire. (laughs) It was a direct (laughs) one-to-one representation. Like, in a satire, things are heightened in order to show the... But in your film... It's so slightly heightened. Yeah. (laughs) the, The conversation we just listened to is absolutely right in the world of the kind of conversation that it is possible to have in some places. I've been fortunate not to be in exactly that situation um, <laughs> since since my recent little run here of working on a few shows. I wonder if you feel like you have some kind of insight now that has allowed you to become a television guy again. Hmm. Um because, in fact, one of the Because it things... really seems like the movie you'd make as you were leaving the television business forever. Well, that's one of the... In that same interview, you said, yeah, now that I think of it, it's possible I'll never work in television again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly didn't pull any punches. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, I um, didn't for a long time, you know. And I, I wonder if, uh, uh, if something about your approach changed or if you just made a $200 million movie, you know... <laughs> Or like, well, I you know, got at with, that time, I mean, I or made Judd, the movie. Judd Apatow made a pile of super successful movies and you were buddies with him. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I think what happened, I mean, that's conceivable. Bad Teacher hadn't come out yet, so that was an unknown quantity. Uh, proximity to Judd and having worked on those movies, uh, on you know, Walk Hard with him. I mean, nobody really looked at Walk Hard as the kind of success that gives people a tremendous... 
uh, you know, it was, a, you a it was, that was kind of a secret comedy. Um, uh, Walk Hard, uh, by the time, you know, it was a movie we absolutely loved, but it was like really hard and it wasn't a hit, you know. Um, Probably had a hit soundtrack for for original film for a comedy. Uh, you know, a hit among a among film. about a dozen people and a certain uh, it was a, among a certain crowd. Uh, honestly, Walk Hard was as much it was like one of the great experiences of my life. It just wasn't like a um, commercial hit, right. you know. I think what you know what happened was kind of a funny. I had no real aspiration to go back to making TV shows, and Elizabeth Merriweather, who created New Girl, uh, sent me the pilot script that was not yet called New Girl. It was called, I'm not sure you can even say it on the air, and it had a, it had an unbroadcastable working title. Wait, I want to hear what it is. We'll bleep it out uh, if we Chicks have to. Chicks and d***s. <laughs> and um, the, uh, feels not radio-friendly. Basically, Liz, who I didn't really know, I'd met her a couple times, sent me her pilot script. I just thought it was really funny, and it kind of wasn't like some strategic decision about television it was just kind of a decision to go make a pilot for the first time in many years that was a unusually good experience also um and we got the first thing we did was was get zoe to play the part uh zoe deschanel and we put together a really funny group around her the show was successful enough to keep going and the next thing i knew i i was doing a bunch of tv again you know but it was really like new girl kind of walked me through that door without much kind of determination well jake i really appreciate you taking the time to be on bullseye it was really great to talk to you. oh it's great to talk to you thanks for having me Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. Harvey Picar was a pretty regular guy. He'd tell you that himself. Picar was a record collector. He loved jazz, especially swing and bebop. And one day in the early 70s, this friend tells him he knows this other guy who's also a collector. And this other guy's more into old-timey stuff. So these two guys, Harvey and the other guy, they get in touch and they meet up because they figure they can trade with each other. You know, old-timey for bebop, swing for ragtime, that kind of thing. And this other guy turns out to be R. Crumb. Picar wasn't an artist, but he was kind of a self-taught intellectual, curious about everything. And he had this thought knocking around in his head. Comics, he figured, were just words and pictures. So why'd they have to be superhero things, or Sunday funnies, or even weird trip-out hippie stuff? Couldn't they just be anything? Couldn't they be about normal stuff? So he wrote up some stories with some stick figures, and he showed them to Crumb just one day when they were hanging out and talking about jazz. And Crumb read them, and he loved them. Picar's stories weren't anything that there had been comics about before. They were just stories from the life of a regular guy. And that's how Picar created American Splendor, a little comic that did everything completely differently. Like, here's one storyline. P. Carr's talking about picking a lane at the grocery store, being careful who you get behind, watching out for slow cashiers, and especially, especially avoiding old ladies because they are the slowest. But on this one day, he's got to get a couple things, and so he picks the express line. But 
It's the express line with a lousy cashier, one who gave him the wrong change once. And there's an old lady, of course. And she's holding everything up. She's pulling out coupons and counting pennies. And he's just sort of running through all the anxieties in his head and getting really pissed off. So she finally finishes. And Picard gets up to the counter. But the old lady's not leaving. She has a question about the receipt. And he's thinking, this dumb old woman's probably going to lie. And she's going to say she got short change. And she's going to call for the manager. And it's going to be this whole thing. But actually what she does, she totters back to the check stand and she says to the cashier, ma'am, I think you gave me an extra quarter. And the cashier insists that she didn't because she's a lousy cashier and she doesn't want to admit that she's a lousy cashier. But she's wrong. She did. And eventually she takes back the quarter. And it's right there at the end that you know that it's a story from American Splendor. A lot of the stories have lessons, but they don't wrap up nice. There aren't grand arcs, just these moments. Laundromats, helping friends move, weird co-workers, going to the movies. I've never read anything that so perfectly captures, you know, the times when you're not sure what the hell you're doing with your life, or just what it's like to walk home from work and think. American Splendor makes putting one foot in front of the other feel like something special. The comic used to be billed as from off the streets of Cleveland, American Splendor. It's just perfect. Picard's great gift was to imbue ordinary lives with the grandeur of superheroes, not by juicing them up or heightening them or making them into soap operas, but just by giving them the respect they deserve. His gift was making the human superhuman. Thanks, Harvey. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Maria Spertolozzi. Thanks to Chris Barube for editing this week's program. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Mr. Dan Wally. All previous episodes of this show are free, ready, and waiting for you to download them. Just go to our website, MaximumFun.org. You can like Bullseye on Facebook. We post... Great, fun, interesting links every single day. When you like the page, you're basically subscribing to get all those in your feed. So go do it now, and your Facebook feed will be 100% more awesome and 100% less filled with you-won't-believe-what-happened-when stories. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.